In the Name of Overhead Athletics podcast, where we cover rehabilitation, biomechanics, human movement, and optimizing human performance. To a podcast here, we got Randy Sullivan on today. Randy is a physical therapist as well as a strength and conditioning coach. He specializes in the treatment of overhead throwing athletes as well as motor learning strategies to teach these athletes more efficient biomechanical sequences. A lot of Randy's methodology has been seen uh, used by various professional athletes online and various collegiate athletes and videos. You've seen a lot of highlights and a lot of training methodologies online. There's a good chance you've seen a lot of the things that Randy implements at the Florida Baseball Ranch. So just a little synopsis of, of Randy's credentials would be he has a master's degree in physical therapy from Baylor University. He also has a degree in physical education from the Citadel. He was also a high-level baseball player at the Citadel, so we'll let him talk a little bit about that. But uh, welcome to the podcast, Randy. Thank you. Thank you. High level is a little bit of a stretch, but yeah, thanks. I appreciate Very that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna so, try uh, to memorize that intro. That was really good. Thanks. <laughs> I'll use that later. Yeah, there so, we go. So we, we, we know a little bit about your credentials, you know, as Max just stated, but maybe you could help us, you know, how did you end up where you are now? Could you kind of walk us down the path of leading into physical therapy and then baseball and that whole timeline? Yeah. yeah. So I was a uh, you know, like a high school shortstop, mediocre at best, um, three-sport athlete in high school, but then thought baseball was going to be my, my end point and, you know, wasn't quite as good as I thought I was, I guess. And I ended up walking on at an NAIA school and then played there for two years at Erskine College as a below-average shortstop. Um, did okay, but then I transferred to the Citadel as a walk-on. Um, I had a friend that was playing there and it looked like a pretty cool program. It looked like it was well-organized, well-run by a Hall of Fame coach named Chow Port. And so my best friend, the kid I grew up with, his name is Tim Jones. He was All-American there at the Citadel. And I, he, I, he said, I might have a chance to play. So I walked, I transferred to that military hazing thing, which is weird. No one does that. <laughs> um, I transferred in and I sat out a year and then played two years and had a pretty reasonable career. What happened is uh, turned out that they needed a catcher and, uh, they asked me if I could do it, and I thought, okay, let's try that because I'm not going to make it as a shortstop. So became a catcher, and then the world changed, and I played pretty well there, did okay, and um, learned a lot about the game sitting next to Coach Port, listening to hear him, hear him talk, and thought that uh, I was going to go into coaching. Um, I was a phys ed major, but I was there on an Air Force ROTC scholarship. So, you know, no chance of going to play pro ball. I I don't know that I was good enough. Anyway, I talked to a few scouts my last year. just told them, like, I'm sorry, I – I got to go in the Air Force. So my first job out of, out of school, I was a nuclear missile launch officer. I sat in a hole in the ground and waited for orders to launch the missiles that would end the world, you know? And uh, so that's kind of scary when you look at 22-year-old me and that job. <laughs> um, and so I know, if you know me, then that's frightening, okay? Um, but when I got there, I was taking some classes to get a master's degree in sport administration. And I was riding back and forth to Greeley, Colorado, when uh, the guy that I was going to class with was looking into how to become a physical therapist in the Air Force. And they had this program uh, where if you had good enough grades, you could apply for it. And they would let one Air Force person go to the Army's physical therapy school in San Antonio, Texas. And so I applied for that and got it. And that changed everything. I became a physical therapist. And so I was in the Air Force for 10 years. And then they stationed me here in Tampa. And I... The last five years, I was working as a physical therapist, and uh, it got to be time to move again, and my kids were getting to be school age, and we'd all, I had three boys who were starting to play baseball, and I thought, what a great place to raise a family. So I got out of the service and started a physical therapy practice here in town, and, uh, and we did that for about 30 years and raised all my boys here, and, you know, they all played ball, and we started attracting in our physical therapy practice a lot of baseball players because I was coaching, and everybody, you know, somebody gets hurt. Oh, you're a physical therapist and you're a baseball coach. Let me come there. And really the way that, that we started was, you know, I was the father of this 17 year old lefty who was a really good pitcher, man. He was, he was top on his high school team, played for one of the top five nationally ranked travel teams and was the Sunday championship guy, you know, 75 pitch complete games were the norm. I'd always told him, man, 
don't worry about velocity. Just throw strikes, win games. Because, you know, at the Citadel, we didn't have a lot of guys who threw hard. We just won. We just threw strikes and got outs. And um, so I said, just throw strikes, win games. Coaches will dig in and chicks will want to go out with you, you know. So, um, <laughs> and and it, it turned out that neither one was true. <laughs> you know, he, 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 you know, he got into his senior year and it was no, no, no offers from anybody. And I would, I would hear you know, I would see guys come off the bench, you know, throwing 90 and get a scholarship when they threw it off the backstop and lost the game. And so, you know, I didn't know much about college baseball recruiting or anything like that back then. I just knew that they never talked to us. They never would speak to you and tell you why they didn't like your kid. They would just walk away. I didn't know they weren't allowed to. Okay. And so um, he was going to his last tournament of his junior year at, at, in Jupiter. And I was like, why don't, why doesn't anybody want let's let, let this kid have a shot. Right. And um, so I noticed they all dressed alike, right? They all had um, the hat with the sunglasses on backwards. They had the logo shirt. Cargo shorts were huge back then, you know. You can't argue with the utility of all those pockets. Um, And uh, coaching shoes, right? And so I thought, I'm going to dress up like one of them, and I'm going to go sit amongst them and let them, you know, I'm not going to be dad, but then I'm going to act like I'm a coach and just listen to what they have to say about my son. So he got ready to pitch in Jupiter in one of the big games, and I filtered in with all the college recruiters and, and uh, they, he did his inning. They put up their radar guns. I didn't know they had radar. I had, I had a satchel, but I had books, and I didn't even know. I didn't know they were looking at radar guns. And so, um, when he got done through in a one-two-three inning, they all put him in back in their in their holsters, and they left. And one guy turned to me. He said, "Man, this kid's really good, but he doesn't throw hard enough to compete at our level." And I'm like, "Wow, I didn't know that was what you had to do. I thought you had to get outs. Instead, you got to be able to throw hard." So I'm like, "All right, well, you know." They want us to throw hard. We'll figure out how to throw hard. So I started asking everybody, how do you do that? You know, how do you teach someone to throw hard? And everybody, a lot of people said you can't. It's a gift. It's like growing a bigger head. Impossible. Um, medical people, baseball people. And I'm like, you know, this is back before there were any velocity training facilities, really. I mean, you, you never heard of that, right? And um, so I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute. It's a movement. I'm a physical therapist. I teach people to move every day, right? I thought if I can if I can teach a person who just had a stroke and has half a brain left to walk, I might be able to get a couple of miles an hour on my kid. We just got to figure out the movement. And the hard part was that since it was sort of uncharted territory, people that said they knew how to teach it or knew the movement, it, a lot of it didn't make sense to me. I mean, you know, I, I knew the anatomy and when they would say you have to do this, I'm like, that doesn't seem to me like how the body would work. Right. And so we kind of had to start carving our own path. Right. So we started down this road and then I, I met Ron Wolforth and I, I started uh, reading some of his stuff and uh, got some of his, his ideas, bought the original athletic pitcher program. Um, and then it was going pretty well. And I decided we're going to go out there and meet this guy. So we flew out there for camp on 4th of July weekend, 2008, I think it was. And, and uh, after the first presentation, I was like, okay, yeah, I have been missing a lot of things. And I was really disappointed because a lot of stuff that, that he said made a lot of sense. I just hadn't really applied the physical therapy part to the baseball part. I was treating them as two different worlds. And I realized that, man, I can really help here by adding that background to this process, right? And so we started over and he, you know, my, my son actually gained a lot of velocity. He ended up playing uh, at Weatherford College and Junior College and went from 79 he was 81 he touched 81 his last high school game and they had him at 93 when they committed him to a d1 school out of his juco in two years and so i'm like this is really good and wasn't long before we realized okay all these baseball players that we're attracting we rehab them with traditional physical therapy we send them back out with their return to throwing program which is the same one that everybody does right it was i always joke that it was written when it was okay to smoke cigarettes in the dugout right yeah. 30, 60, yeah. 90, 120, this many throws, so yeah. five minutes, and then yeah. you got 30 more yeah. throws. 20, yeah, 25 throws from 45 feet, and, you know, the same thing. And it had been copied so many different times, it was, like, slanted and faded. <laughs> and, you know, like I, I was, like I would say, when they wrote it, it was okay to smoke cigarettes in the dugout, right? Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, so – so we started thinking, we haven't, we've sent these people back out and they kept coming back. Like they would go out, they'd be injured. We'd rehab them. They go out and throw, they come back six weeks later, hurt again. And it, we began to realize, wow, we haven't changed anything. That's the problem. We, we just, we just controlled their volume for a little while. Right. And 
we send them back out throwing exactly the same way they did before they got hurt. We got to start changing the way they throw. And I started realizing the things that we had learned to help my son with his velocity would, would certainly apply to helping these guys get, get healthier because it was all about efficient movement. So we started applying those principles and guys started getting better and we started attracting more players. And, you know, obviously anytime you forge new ground in an area, we were kind of making our own way. And, you know, we get a little pushback from the community, right? You would, as you might imagine, you would have thought we hated babies and wanted puppies to die for a while there, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's like, look, we're just trying to help some kids that don't have a chance. And, and what happened is we started out in a little 900 square foot office that we converted. It was 55 feet long and 15 feet wide. And all these guys kept coming there. We, we put some turf in it and put some bands on the walls and started throwing metal. We, we reinforced the walls with uh, three quarter inch plywood and uh, put nets in there and started working and they started getting better. The players did. And, you know, the kids finally got so good. They kind of kicked the resistance down for us. They, they, they got so good that the world, the baseball community started noticing, wow, what's going on over there. Right. And so really the credit for any success we have here at the Florida baseball ranch has got to go to those players that were the, the, the forerunners of the whole process, the guys, the, 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 the path carvers, right. The, um, those guys, if you think about it, we weren't attracting studs. We were attracting everybody's rejects. Everybody got was kicked to the curb and ignored. Either you don't throw hard enough or you're hurt or you'll never be able to do it. Those are the kind of kids that were showing up at our place. And they were believing in a, in a system that it didn't even exist yet. We, we, we were figuring it out, right? And of course, we made some mistakes along the way. Of course, we didn't get it right right away. But we kept learning together and they were willing to allow us to learn together and and if you think about the, the, the trust that they put in you for that, like they're believing in something that hasn't ever existed and thinking that it's going to help them. And it did. And it was great to watch that happen. And some of the relationships that we form with those kids, we still hear from them all the time. And it was just really a neat place for people to train. You know, it's one of those talent code type hotbed Spartan environments that, that really you can't replicate. And they just started feeding off each other and getting better. And so then about, I guess probably 2015 or 14, I'd been going out to help Ron with some of his camps. And, you know, we had, we had become really good friends and worked together a lot. And I started bringing the, the sort of the medical, the physical therapy side to the process so that we could, you know, do the physical screening and learn how these guys move and, you know, how their physical structure is made. And, and so then some of the motor learning concepts that, that we're familiar with in physical therapy, we brought to the table and, and then combine that with what Ron already had going, which was a great thing anyway. And, he came to me in 2015 and said, look, we're really good together. Why don't, you know, why don't we just form this thing called the Florida baseball ranch and we'll, we'll call it a consortium and kind of blend our skills together. And that's been really a great relationship for the last probably what, five, six years now. So, um, so we changed our name from the armory. It used to be called the armory back in the day. We changed it to the Florida baseball ranch and moved to a big place out here. And, and so we've been just kind of growing the process since then and just, continual evolution, you know, of research. And so um, big, big stimulus was when um, at the Texas Baseball Ranch Coaches uh, Boot Camp there one year, I think it was 2014 or 13. When I, when I first heard Franz Bosch and was introduced to his, to his ideas and it, it, it kind of rocked my world. And I started going down that path of studying behavioral psychology and motor learning science and skill acquisition science. And, and then that was about, you know, an eight year independent study of, of, of that stuff. Well, I guess it's probably been about six or seven years. And then getting to meet Franz and working with him and he's become a great friend and a mentor sharing his ideas. We, we, you know, the Dutch guys from the Dutch national program have been really uh, great to share ideas with. And, and then just kind of putting all these pieces together and forming a system, a process that we can use, that we can replicate, that we can train guys with that, that allows us to, to have a, cohesive process that allows for individualization of everybody's training plan which has been really cool and been fortunate to have some great people that work for us and work with us and you know I don't ever feel like our employees work for us I feel like we work together and and then my business partner for the last 30 years Amy Marsh has been the CEO COO of both the physical therapy practice and the baseball ranch and so you know how it is with us coaches if it was up to me I'd run it into the ground and we'd be bankrupt and wouldn't be able to help anybody but she manages she she manages all the business side of it. So I don't have to worry about that part of it. And she's been phenomenal and, and just kind of keeps us heading in the right direction so we can continue to help players. So 
that's pretty much the story. And here we are. I live, I'm living the dream, man. My kids are grown and gone. They all play college baseball. My third one is, is a, we're not sure what year he's in. He's like a junior, senior, COVID something. South Florida. Okay. He's going to graduate from college in May, but he has a couple years left if he wants to play. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway. Um, so I just get to, I live three, three miles from here and I just, my commute is a three, a, a three mile commute every day with no traffic in Lakeland. And I just get to come over here and do what I love to do every day, help players. And then in, in the day and go home and do it again. That's pretty awesome. Cool. Yeah. Pretty cool. So that's yeah, our story. That's where we are. You know, what's kind of interesting is that you came from this perspective of attempting to help your son right. gain velocity and mm -hmm. Then you kind of integrated the medical aspect and the physical therapy aspect later on. I came from the perspective of injury where I actually met, met my mentor mm -hmm. at Martell who came from uh, a little bit of the alternate viewpoint where he was injured in his professional career, which mm -hmm. actually led him to physical therapy to discover why he was injured. And then he found out, mm -hmm. hey, I'm using these things to get athletes better. And now I'm finding that athletes are throwing better as a result of, yeah. of doing these things. And so it's almost a convergence of, yeah. hey, I came in, into it with performance enhancement goals, but then merged the medical aspect, whereas Ed came into it and then me following him and Carter following him kind of had that alternative viewpoint. And you were actually the person that pointed me towards Franz Bosch uh, a couple years ago because you and Ed had a little bit of a, a Twitter discussion regarding long toss. Mm -hmm. And um, Ed was discussing the arthrology of the shoulder and ligamentous orientation. You were discussing, mm -hmm. um, you know, Wolf's Law and motor learning uh, mm -hmm. theories and things like that. And I remember Ed was, at the time, this was when Ed was getting really sick, but he was kind of like, hey, this is, this is what we need to read. Let's, let's, get, that, let's get that book uh, from that Franz Bosch guy after we kind of looked through, through the feed. So, uh, you know, I kind of invested myself in that. And it, it's interesting yeah. to see the uh, interventions. Like you said, you worked with a stroke patient. You could teach the stroke patient to walk better. The interventions that you use with someone with a, a neurodegenerative uh, disability are the same thing at a, at a different uh, level than what you would use with athletes. And so that kind of leads us into a discussion of uh, motor learning, um, internal mm -hmm. cueing versus external cueing. And I know that a lot of our listeners are familiar with the terminology a little bit, but maybe you could kind of expand upon that and talk about how you may cue an athlete to make a mechanical change. Maybe give us an example. Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the things that I think like guys like you and me, that the, the role we can play is sort of the, the link between the, 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 academic, the academics and the application, right? The, uh, you know, um, not to offend anybody, but to connect the nerds and the Neanderthals, right? Let's, let's get them all to be working together. Look, I'm a Neanderthal and I'm a nerd. So, you know, I'm not disparaging anybody there. there. But, there. Yeah, but, but like, we gotta make it like, ideas that aren't applied are irrelevant. They're just thoughts, right? So we have to take these concepts because all motor learning theory is exactly that, it's theory, right? All coaching theory is exactly that, it's theory. So you apply it and then you test it and you see what works and, you know, different things work for different people, but um, the, the internal versus external cueing. So I kind of shy away from the term cue because it's been so, so overused. Right. Um, uh, we know, we know a couple of things that we, that we assumed that were, that were wrong. Okay. Number one, repeatable mechanics. You can repeat your mechanics, right. And Bernstein proved that we can't, right. It's, it's, you're, it's under, it's a unicorn. The repeatable mechanics is, doesn't exist. Every throw is different. Every movement is different. Um, and so instead of being someone who repeats his mechanics, we need our athlete to be someone who can adjust those mechanics on the fly. Right. And it has to happen in at high speed in a high, in a high intensity movement. When there's time pressure, you can't think your way through that. So you can't have a thought process. You can maybe start a thought process that might head you down the right direction, but in the movement, there's no time to think about how you're moving. Like you, it's, it's impossible to go, I'm going to put my foot here and have my arm here at this exact moment, right? 
um, because we can do the math and see how long it takes for an impulse to go from your brain to your muscles and back up. It's just not enough time. Well, it didn't occur to the motor learning field. Why are we teaching a skill that doesn't allow us time to think by demanding that we think about it all the time, right? Like, and I, I mm -hmm. call it twit coaching. And I'm, again, I'm not disparaging anybody. I was a twit, right? Um, it's an acronym, T-W-I-T. -I, I tell you what to do. I watch you do it. I inform you of everything you've done wrong. And then I tell you how to do it better. <laughs> and if you mm -hmm. don't get it, you're uncoachable because it worked on the, the guys I got lucky on before, right? Um, and so we're asking to change by saying, oh, yeah, next pitch, I want you to think about this. No, that's not right. I want you to focus on that. No, you screw that up too. I want you to concentrate on, and there's just no time for thinking, focusing, and concentrating. There's no time, right? So <clears throat> in a time-compressed situation, really, the only thing that can make you move is the sensory information that you gather as you move. What you see, what you feel, what you hear, what your balance tells you, your vestibular sense, and what your proprioception sense tells you. And so instead of training you by, by using cues and thoughts, verbal cues and thoughts, we choose to go implicitly and train you by manipulating that sensory information, like change what the athlete sees, feels, hears, what his balance or his proprioception tells him. And when you can learn to sort of masterfully manipulate that, you can guide the athlete toward a more efficient movement and he, and he doesn't have to think about it happening. And, you know, three things happen. One, you learn faster because the words don't get in the way, right? I always t I get kids to come in here and I say, what does it mean when I say you're flying open? They say, it means you're pulling your shoulder open. I say, no, I was talking about your hip. And if they had said hip, I'd have said shoulder, right? Because mm -hmm. words mean different things. Like, like if I'm going to use a verbal cue to train you in a high intensity movement, I got to assume that you and I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay. And I got to assume that your brain can tell your muscles what to do and it can't, it's just not enough time. Okay. So you learn faster. The words don't get in the way. It, it transfers to the game better because you don't have time to think in the game. I ask everybody this question, best you ever pitch. What were you thinking about? And every guy to the, the man says uh, nothing. And I'm like, yeah. So let's right. train in a way that lets us think about nothing. If we're going to have to perform thinking about nothing, let's train thinking about nothing. Okay. And then the third thing is lots of studies in motor learning research that, that suggest that, when you acquire a skill implicitly, the way we're talking about by using the sensory information instead of words and thoughts, it withstands psychological pressure better than the other way around, right? And so ranch guys don't choke because they don't have to think about how they move. Whether they do or not, that may not be true, but I'm trying to create a self-fulfilling process. They don't, ranch guys don't choke, okay? Because they don't know how they do what they do, right? Um, right. So we want them to be able to perform their skills without having to think about it. And as, as a friend Derek Johnson says, they're going to be over the rubber or over the plate, right? Like you can't be over the rubber trying to compete against the guy in the batter's box. You have to be over the plate. You have to be attacking the hitter. And if you don't have to concern yourself with how you're moving, then you can concentrate on competing and winning games. And I think there's a lot of value in, in implicit learning. Um, it's not that we never cue guys. We never say things to them. Like, of course we use cues, right? But we try to minimize that as much as possible. And and a big breakthrough for us in this savage training process is, is when in Franz's new book, he talks about this um, anatomy of agility is the name of the new book. And he, and he says the, the body responds much better to, uh, to force and inertia or energy cues than to postural position and even cognitive and verbal cues. So, so instead of telling a guy to move or even putting him to a position to feel something where he passively got into that position, that's okay, but a better way is to give him some sort of force that his body has to manage. And so, like, if we got a guy that can't find a one-legged hinge, instead of telling him to get his butt behind his heel or even using a band to pull him into that place, we just have him drop off a 12-inch box with an unpredictable load over his head, and he better, by golly, hinge his hips and control that, you know, and find stability. So, and, and so... If we got a guy that can't, we have some terms that, that we got from Franz's book, once hip lock a toe off. If we got a guy that can't get a hip lock, we're just going to get an unpredictable load, the, the aqua ball or water boy, and hold it over his head, have him do some hip locks, and then throw a pitch, and the hip lock will be there. It, you have to look at the movement, <laughs> the tractor, the, 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 the part of the movement that has to be stable for us to be able to predict how the guy is going to move is it's called an attractor, and we have to go, okay, what is, what is it we're trying to get this guy to do? And how can we give him an, a force or energy cue that's going to make his body feel it? And once they feel it a couple of times, it's such an efficient way to move when they have to learn to control that unstable load. It, it's a, such an efficient way to move that they release hormones that make the body go, 
absolutely, I won't do that again. And they learn really fast, right? And mm -hmm. so in our process, there's not a lot of standing over you and telling you how to do stuff. It is looking at the movement <clears throat> through the prism of these more overarching attractors, okay? So, so we, we made a big breakthrough in SAVAGE training. SAVAGE is an acronym. It stands for Specific Adaptation Through Variability and Goal-Directed Experiences. And it's just a cool word to kind of define the process that we use. Um, but two operative words there are specific and adaptation. The body's always going to adapt, no matter what you do. You do nothing, it'll adapt, right? Send an astronaut in space for 30 days, he comes down, there's been an adaptation, his muscles are weak, his bones are brittle. So it's always going to adapt. We needed to adapt specifically to what the outcome we're trying to get. And so many times in training, we, we get the wrong st stimulus, so we, get a, we don't get a, a specific adaptation, right? We're, right? we're trying to get a guy that can that can be strong enough to throw a baseball hard. And we get a guy that's really good at picking up heavy stuff. He looks good in a swimsuit, right? It's not a specific outcome because mm -hmm. it wasn't, it couldn't be applied to what we're trying to do. So, so um, <clears throat> what we have to do is look at, and, and when we were teaching mechanics, right? I, I kind of shy away from that term. When you teach mechanics, it's, it's like, um, it's too specific. It's too, it's too direct on that particular skill. And so what we try to do with savage training is teach movement instead of mechanics. And so the, the, the example I like to use is like, I try to dabble with guitar, like in, like after I grow up and I get my real job. Okay. <laughs> uh, here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to be that guy in the corner of the restaurant or bar who plays like 20 songs that nobody listens to. And then that's, that's, I want to be the lounge lizard, right? That nobody, okay. just one man goes in. Right. Wasn't that Billy so, Joel at one point? <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah but i don't want to go i don't want to go fan. i just want to do that right and then go home yeah right? okay okay um so i'm trying to learn to play the guitar it's fun you know but i could take either of you two guys and for after a couple of days i could teach you to pluck out the solo to stairway to heaven on the guitar like if you practice enough in a couple of days maybe a weekend you'd have it right but you'd only be able to play that song that's mechanics a better process would be to teach you the scales that you can use to do a solo on any song and that's teaching movement. And so when you focus on the movement, it's universal to all athletic endeavors. These, these things that we look for in pitching are the same as they are in hurdling and in, in football and soccer and basketball and tennis and rugby and baseball and pitching and hitting and throwing and playing defense. All movement is governed by some universal principles that are, that are applicable to everyone because the anatomy is the anatomy, right? It can only do what it can do. Um, and, and the truth is there's an infinite number of ways to quote, get it done. Right. But those infinite number of ways all fall under the purview of these more overarching principles that have to move. For example, uh, when you're rotating, you can't bend your spine forward and backwards in the sagittal plane, right? If you have to, you have to co-contract your abs and your back muscles so that when you rotate, you're not flexing or extending your spine. And that's, that's common to every athletic endeavor that you can name. Um, you're not going to be as efficient or you're going to be at risk for injury if you violate the sagittal plane while you're rotating, right? And so we look to see if our guy does that. And if he does, now we have to go, how do we teach him not to do that? How do we, and we have to find, and we have to pretty much invent a, an, an exercise or a drill. I don't even, an experience really. I don't even like to call it a drill or an exercise anymore. It's hard to know with our process now are you doing a throwing drill? Or are you doing an exercise? They're all the same, right? They're blend together. Like you're not moving well in the mound. So I'm going to stop you and give your body a, an inner a force that it has to manage with an unpredictable load. And it's going to have to co-contract all the muscles around your spine and stabilize it. And then you're going to move. And then your body's going to love it so much that it's going to want to do it when we go and throw this pitch. And mm -hmm. those changes, it's remarkable how fast those changes occur when you have to teach the body to manage force or inertia versus mm -hmm. telling it how to get or putting it into a posture. Um, the results are really, really fast, really quick. And it, it's kind of expedites the learning process and, and it helps them learn in a way that they can actually transfer to the game, which is implicitly without thought. And so, you know, that's, that's the whole, the whole game that we play. It's, you know, it's the constraints led approach, you know, which is really, mm -hmm popular term and it's differential learning which is another popular term and basically 
simple terms, in the constraints that approach, you got to figure out some way to keep the guy from doing what's screwing him up, or you got to give him something that's so powerful that he doesn't want to do the thing that's screwing him up anymore. <laughs> right. That's the easy way to look at it, right? <laughs> right? I mean, you can, you can science it up and, 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 and you can, you can uh, vocabulary it up all you want, but really that's it. And, and differential learning is just using variability. That's the V for savage is variability or unpredictability is, is sort of a synonym of variability and using that to try to get the guy to stabilize a movement pattern by, by making it a variable, he has to adjust it. And so things like long toss and weighted ball training, whether you're pro or con, they're, they're a tool, right? Um, they're not the answer. If it was like I, Alan Jager is a dear friend of mine. I talked to him once a month, but if it was all about long toss only, everybody would throw hundred and nobody'd be hurt. Right. And if it was all about weighted ball training, everybody would throw hundred and nobody'd be hurt. It's, it's way deeper than that. Right. Those are great tools. And I love them because they are a way to add variability to a highly specific movement. Right. And so now because we have to practice adjustments, the value of long toss is every throw is a little bit different. They're all, you know, the knock on long toss is that it adds stress and it changes your mechanics. The value of long toss is that it adds stress to change your mechanics, right? Mm -hmm. And then, and then weighted ball training, we use weighted ball training sparingly. I would say um, <clears throat> we use a lot more in the beginning and now we've kind of gotten to where I want to find a different way to make the movement stable before I add that load. Okay. Um, and because it's so unknown and so controversial, if you're trying to change an arm action with a heavy ball, that's one way to do it, but there are other ways to do it that are a little less controversial, a little less risky, right? Um, and so we try to get the movement stable before we add that. Now, once we have the guy that's been training with us a long time, he's musculoskeletally developed, he's ready, he, he, his, but let's say he's hit a plateau in his development where he just can't throw any harder or can't throw any more strikes or whatever, then we add that to add a little chaos so that now we shake his system up a little bit and get him to make more adjustments and you know change to a different kind of athlete that can go harder or more accurately or whatever. Um, and so we don't look at weighted balls as the, the, the way to change an arm path, right? We're gonna change it with other means first. And then there are some cases where, for example, if the only thing the guy can throw without pain is a two pound ball, then we'll do some, some, some uh, we'll limit some degrees of freedom and just have him make some movements that with that heavy ball, just because it's all he can throw that doesn't hurt. Right. Until we can begin to release those degrees of freedom and, and expand them out. And so, so, thank you for so there's a, there's a ton <coughs> of information um, in what you just said and a internally based focus where the athlete mm -hmm. continually focused on the quality of the movement, how they were moving. And that's the number one yeah. uh, contributor to the yips with these athletes. We've had a lot of success dealing with athletes with the yips here. We've had guys that, that major league teams have released and they're this one guy's back up at throwing 98. He's back in pro ball again. Right. Um, release with the yips many, many times it happens post injury. Right. right. Um, and I think that that corruptive return to throwing protocol, 25 throws and 45 feet at 50%. That's a slow, low intensity movement. Have you ever tried to throw a ball 50%? It is. <laughs> It's stupid. It, it looks stupid. It doesn't even look like a throw, right? And, and so, 50 is like fifty percent for one athlete is totally different than fifty percent subjectively for another athlete. Some athletes are throwing eighty percent of their total velocity, where another athlete's throwing thirty-three miles per hour. So, it's uh, not true. And it's just and it's just silly. Like, okay, keep it. What does that even mean, right? Um, so we have a rule. Um, our director of player development, Wes McGuire, a really cool dude. He came up with this rule in rehab throws. Don't make it weird and don't make it hurt. <laughs> just oh, do whatever you want. Just don't make it weird and don't make it hurt. Okay. Um, and so if you think about the yips, right? Think about that concept. Um, if in a time compressed situation, the only thing that can make you move is the sensory information that you gather as you move. It occurred to us that the problem with the yips is that whether real or imagined, this guy's body's getting faulty sensory information. It's not getting at some point his his information is telling him, hey, you got to do this, and it, and, and it does it, right? And so we've had a lot of success dealing with guys with yips by just changing the sensory information. Like, again, don't focus on how you're throwing. Let's just 
we have them throw footballs and we have them run right and throw left and run left and throw right. And, and, and then like when we sent this one guy back to pro ball, like he can throw in our training sock and, and, it, and it's awesome. And he warms up in the sock. Right. And then he gets, but he still has a little trouble playing catch because he had a little traumatic experience in pro ball and couldn't play catch. So I'm like, well, who says you have to play catch? Why is that a rule? Like mm-hmm. you don't get paid to play catch. You get paid to throw at 98 miles an hour past the hitter. What if you, so what if you can't play catch, right? Who cares? So I called the team that was going to pick him up. And I said, listen, I talked to the sports psychology guy. I said, listen, don't psych him. Don't, 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 don't intervene with any of these psychological ideas. He's not going to play catch. Okay. He's going to grab a seven ounce ball or a baseball and put it in his training sock. And he's going to get smoking hot. And then he's going to go on the mound in the bullpen and throw your catcher. He's going to throw 98 throw strikes. And he's going to go in the game. Okay. So he can play catch, but there's not a need for it. He doesn't feels uncomfortable doing it. So just let him go throw rockets from the mound. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and so, and we, and we help these guys just by changing the sensory information. Right. So, so I have a theory on, I mean, certainly there's a psychological component and, and your friend who did the study is doing a great job of linking two disciplines, like the psychology and the movement scientists together. Right. Which they all should be. Um, but if you if you think about when when guys go through rehab um they have that that 20 25 throws and 45 feet at low intensity right and we do that for what we do that for six months seven eight months right where we're not throwing at full intent and i, I know you have to protect the tissue it's biologically impaired right so you have to make sure you protect the repair um but when when you're processing sensory sensory information uh, the body has two, two systems that it uses. One's called the ventral stream. And it's sort of the, what am I going to do? How am I going to attack this, this skill, this, this, this task? And it's usable when you have time to think about what you're doing. Okay. But when you're under time pressure, you revert to a more primitive stream called the dorsal stream. And it's a direct perception stream of consciousness. It is, it is the, the, the sensory information is making you move. You're not moving the sensory information. So like the ventral stream would be, equivalent to the slow, I got time to think about corrupted throws. Okay. So imagine there's a bird in the field and your, your light casts an image of it. It goes to your retina and goes to your brain. Your brain interprets it, says it's a bird. And then if you want to see it better, you can constantly tell your muscles to move. And then you get another look at the bird and now you can change the way you move again. That's the ventral stream when I have time. But if the bird starts flying right at my head, it, the bird made me move. I, sensory information made me move. I didn't just choose that. Right. And so that's a more direct relationship. And that's what we have to use in pitching and, and, and athletic events is that direct perception concept. We don't have time to think about it, but what happens with these guys in rehab, we spend so much time with throws that they have time to think about that I think they get stuck in between and their information, it's garbled and they're getting bad sensory input. And so at some point their body goes, do this and, and, it, and it yips up the throw. And when we've been able to train them implicitly and get out of their heads and get them externally focused and have them do a lot of different learning. Like they throw weighted balls, they throw footballs, they throw tennis balls, they, 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 they do running throws. They, they run right, throw left, they run left, throw right. And then the V-flex has been a great tool, right? Uh, the V-flex is those, those concentric rings that, that get smaller and smaller as they get toward home ah, plate. Yeah. Uh, yep. yeah. You know, and with those guys, if you think about it, I mean, Tim Nicey will tell you all the, the, uh, the metaphysics of what's going on there. But to me, it just condenses space and changes what they see. It changes the sensory input. And so now they have to throw it through these rings. They're not throwing this vast space. Sort of like when, uh, remember, like I played basketball in high school. When we played in our gym, our little gym at school, I could shoot really good. But then we play our crosstown rivals in the big arena. Man, it's so much space. It just seems like I can't do this. This is, this is, this is a different skill, right? It's the same 10-foot basket. So we just kind of condense the space with that. And that's been really helpful as sort of the last little feathering to reality is to get them on the reflex and let them throw there. And, and then they start realizing, okay, this space is manageable now. And so we've had a lot of success treating guys with yips just by managing the sensory information. I'm sure that there are some guys that have the yips that have deep-seated psychological issues. But in our world, it's a movement problem until it proves to me it's not a movement problem. And if it's a movement problem, it can be changed by managing the sensory information. And the same goes for injury. If the athlete has some sort of discomfort, arm pain that's led them 
towards the yips or towards these mm -hmm. uh, motor disruptions, having right. that athlete improve the sequencing that they follow throughout the throw, moving towards the attractors, uh, shoulder elevation, or like you talked about forward flexion, lateral deviation, different things that you have. I know you have that little setup where you have all your little different attractors on there, moving towards what we would say is a more efficient biomechanical sequence may relieve the discomfort over time. But also yeah. if you teach them properly and teach them through implicit learning strategies where these athletes are going through the pathway of least resistance without cognitive thought and, and noise, then over time you've not only potentially eradicated their issues with arm pain and discomfort in the throwing motion, but you've also helped to eradicate the potential yips or motor disruption. Yeah, almost like the PTSD component of like, yeah, I got this pain that's gonna keep me from, it's gonna inhibit me, right? You're, you're right, because now they, they begin to feel more and more confident subconsciously that they can make a throw that doesn't hurt, right? right. Um, and, so, and so we're big on that with, it's, it's self-organization of pain management. One of the, I think one of the mistakes we made in physical therapy and there'll be people that argue or disagree with me on this, but you know, we were always worried about these compensation patterns that would kick in and they would like, you can't let that patient raise his arm in that manner because that pattern will stick and he'll go through the rest of his life, raise his arm in that manner. What if, and this is right out of Franz's book, right? And, and conversation with him. What if that guy's attempt to raise his shoulder inappropriately that we would call it inappropriate, what if his body's, way of organizing it so that I can at least raise something and then it would just normalize itself later. And that's what we're seeing. We, it, you know, when we have a guy that has pain, if we, if you rule out structural issues, like if you rule out a UCL or a labrum, you know, you just, this guy's arm hurts. Then many times you can just solve it by letting his body throw something that doesn't hurt. Just find something that doesn't or throw in a way that doesn't hurt and huge breakthrough if you're rehabbing guys is instead of controlling or, or protecting the tissue by, by limiting the amount of force that you apply by limiting the intensity of the throw, instead limit the degrees of freedom of the throw. And then you can still throw it full intent. So for example, take your right foot and put it in front of your left. And now you've, you've eliminated the degrees of freedom in the lower arm. This is why children throw, with the same arm and foot because they can control the degrees of freedom. There's not so many chances to make a mistake, right? So just have him put his right foot in front. And so now he does, you know, what we call a marshal and he can throw it almost full intent. And li the, the limitation of the degrees of freedom allows us to protect his arm while it's healing, but we can still do a reasonable effort throw. <clears throat> you can throw with two hands, like a, like a overhead ball, of course, within the limits of what you think you can tolerate. But you could, when you throw with two hands, you limit the degrees of freedom. And so you can make two-handed throws that we can throw at relatively high intent. And, and then gradually, as the tissue will allow, start to release those degrees of freedom. Now put your feet the right way. And now let's add a little shuffle. Now let's add a little drop-in. Now let's add the lower half. And let's start releasing degrees of freedom. And the whole time, we've thrown a reasonable intent throw that works on the dorsal stream instead of this, this low-intensity throw that we have all this time to think about. And I think that's that another never, That may never transfer to the field either. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So, so I'm just, I don't know what your uh, distribution of uh, clientele is in terms of injured, healthy athletes. Mm -hmm. I know at the OAI, we see predominantly injured athletes to start, mm -hmm. but then continue with us for performance yeah. enhancement after that. So I would say that 50% of the athletes that we see on a day-to-day -day basis would be guys that are currently injured in the mm -hmm. rehabilitation process or in a surgical protocol sent over from a physician. And then the other 50% of guys are looking to improve their velocity. They're mm -hmm. looking to improve their performance by some, by some metric. And so those athletes all get treated in similar ways, unless they're, they're just post-op just out of surgery and the return to throw protocol um, in rehabilitation. And I think this is where some people get confused. And I know this is where I initially, um, you know, had some confusion and things like that. So maybe you could touch on this a little bit, but you talked about 
uh, posture versus inertia uh, and forces and, and how the body will respond better to the inertias and forces. And sometimes what we've found is the combination of both. So pre-positioning in a way in which you've limited the degrees of freedom, like, like you're talking about, you've placed constraints on the system and you've pre-positioned an athlete into um, a position where they don't place the same tensile loads on their ulnar collateral ligament, or they don't put their shoulder in a potential apprehensive position and then initiate the throw from there, see how they move through the throwing motion. And then the following cues will start with implicit cueing and, and when necessary, we'll use some sort of uh, internally based focus with these injured guys at times, but then always progressing towards uh, something where they don't have to cognitively think about it. Mm -hmm. and what we've mm -hmm. kind of found is in the injured athlete population, especially these guys, because we see a, a lot of guys that are sent to us kind of last resort where it's like, hey, I'm a senior in high school. I need to make yeah. a college team if I'm going to continue playing. I don't have time for a surgery, but I have a torn UCL. I want to make the most of the season or I have some sort of uh, labral pathology. So we have to get these athletes to throw as soon as possible in a way in which it's the stress on their shoulder elbow is going to be limited. And so then we say, okay, here's what we do. We're going to, we're going to tell them how we want them to throw it. We're going to give them verbal instruction. And then once they can replicate that pattern with, with some verbal cueing, we then change the environment and, and use these uh, implicit strategies. Like I know you guys use the connection ball or, uh, create less stability of the floor, um, utilize a, a initiate like a initiation pattern where they have to start with the ball in a specific position or, or those sorts of things uh, that require less cognitive thought later on. I'm just curious what, what your thoughts would be on a, on a process such as that in that situation. Yeah. So I, I would say that in our practice, about 25% of the guys come here hurt, you know, the other guys are just performance-based. Um, but along the way, people have little tweaks and injuries that you got to manage, you know, they, they, and, and so, um, so yeah, I, first of all, we are not anti-verbal cue. Like you, you sometimes I'm use glad, cue. I'm glad, okay. I'm glad you said that because uh, I know, I know that's your perspective. I read a couple of your things and even when we were talking earlier, you said that, but I, I think that that's a, uh, uh, people at, you know, there's always the pendulum and people yeah. go, Way over here. Well, if you think and about it, a cue, a verbal cue is a constraint. Like, okay, don't do this with your arm is a constraint. It's, it's just a tough one that's, it's a tough one to interpret, right? A lot of times. And so, and it gets overutilized because it's the easiest one to go to, right? So, um, so yeah, so we, so I, I like your approach and, and what you're doing is you're, I, the, we, we have a lot of those guys that I can tell you so many stories about guys that should, the doctors told them they shouldn't be throwing. And we got guys playing pro ball throwing 96 miles an hour. If you think about it, if the, if the motor control and coordination is good enough, you don't need a UCL and you don't need a labrum. If your UCL and your labrum are controlling stress, you're in trouble already, right? Your muscles are supposed to attenuate the stress. Your muscles are supposed to keep the stress off of the ligament, right? And so mm -hmm. if, if, if you're, to me, the ligament and the labrum are the last line of defense, right? And if they're under stress, we're in trouble already. So it's a coordination problem. We got to get the muscles to time up so that they co-contract at the right time and protect the inert tissue. And so um, I like what you, you start out by, of course, you have to give a guy a cognitive picture of what we're trying to do. Like, mm -hmm. okay, we're going to do this. And then I might, you may even demonstrate it. Here's what I want you to do. Okay. Now, um, then, then gradually, and, and, and as far as like positioning someone, um, the way I look at that is in, in the beginning, it's okay. In the beginning, it's a good idea, right? Like, um, so I think in, in motor learning, they call that a guide. Like, I don't know where I read that. Beacon. But like, yeah, the beacons yeah. of performance. Yeah. Like, give give so, the beacons to follow. Yeah. Yeah. So like, so like here's, if, if you, you can use that for a little while in the beginning. Like, okay, it's like training wheels. Like if you got a, an archer that keeps pulling the bow off to the side and that's his problem and you put a metal guard up so he can't pull it right off the side, 
if he if he if you take the metal guard away, he's likely to do it again because he really there was no motor learning that occurred, right? Um, right. If you position him and 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 provide the position for him, or use bands to pull him into a hinge or something like that, he he didn't learn how to get there. He was placed there, right? And so did motor learning occur? So in the beginning, that's a really great place to start because we got to get them in there to feel something. But what I want to feel, not necessarily is being in the position. I want them to feel getting into the position. I want, I want them to feel how they got there, right? Not just, this is what it feels like to be here. Mm-hmm. You've got to feel how to get there, okay? And so, so in the beginning, cues like that and then positioning the arm, I, I'm all about it. Let's do it. We just have to taper that off pretty quickly. Like we got to get them to, we got to get to the motor learning part where they're, they're, they're learning how to, how to control the movement. And we use, um, we use a lot of basically, you know, what we're trying to do is get all the muscles around the joint or limb to co-contract isometrically at the right moment to protect the, mm-hmm. the nerve tissue. I mean, that's the whole game that we play in injury, uh, in energy management is trying to get muscles to co-contract in timing, sequencing and synergy so that we can attenuate stress on inert tissue. That's, that's what we do, right? Um, and the way you elicit those in our world is uh, you can't tell a guy to co-contract. You can tell him to co-contract or you can tense it, but you can't tell him to do it at that second, at that, that microsecond when he has to do it, right? Right. And so, so this is Paul Venner from the Netherlands, the strength and conditioning coach with the uh, Dutch national program. His, uh, he has at least three ways. One is manual pretension. You can just tense it up and position it manually you can like on the glove side and the lead leg they tend to be floppy because there's nothing in them and there's no there's no weight bearing they tend to get a little lost so if you just tense them up they'll be a little more controllable and then you can use perturbations or unpredictable loads and so we in our, in our rehab we'll early on start doing little perturbations valgus stress and things like that to get the muscles to co-contract by perturbing it and then time pressure and that's also sort of time pressure right when the body doesn't have time to organize movement it co-contracts, right? When the body doesn't, when it's exposed to an unpredictable load, it co-contracts. If you ever mm-hmm. held a squirming, squirming baby or take a box out of the closet, you don't know what it weighs, you co-contract, right? And so when the load is unpredictable, and that's why those aqua balls and, and water boys that we use are so helpful because the stimulus is unpredictable. And so I have to co-contract and, and control that. And just I can get that. Just if doesn't know, maybe you could touch on what those are. Okay, yeah, your- so... Yeah, so we use a lot of, uh, and, and I, think, I think Paul Venner and the Dutch guys invented the process, but it's like these tubes that are half full of water, okay? These cylinders, and they got handles on them, or a ball that's half full of water. Looks like a big therapy ball, but it's half full of water, and it has handles on it. And, and we begin to move that, and as you move it through space, the water sloshes around, and you really can't predict what's going to happen. So it gives you a variable load. It gives you this unpredictable load. And when right. you're exposed to an unpredictable load, you have to, you have to control your muscles by, by tensing up isometrically. And that takes all the slack out of the system so that now we have stability. Now, you know, we're not floppy. We're not out of control. We're, we're controlling mm-hmm. degrees of freedom. And so unpredictable loads are really, are really a great way to, to, and when you use unpredictable as a stimulus, as opposed to heavy weight, now I can get into planes of motion that match the skill that I'm trying to accomplish exactly. I can't move the metal bar like I move a pitch but I can move that water ball like a move pitch and get into, mm-hmm. into planes of motion because we're trying to create specific adaptations, right? Um, it's not that we never lift heavy weights, by the way. We do, we have a gym, we do, we do weightlifting. But if that's all you do, you never teach your body to elicit these well-timed and synchronized co-contractions. And so it's coordinated strength. This is the theme of Franz's first book. Is it's, it's not just strength, it's strength that, that you can coordinate to help you make a movement, to, make, to make the, uh, form an outcome. And so, and then third way is time pressure. When the body's exposed to, when you don't have time to organize movement, you have to co-contract. If, if I'm standing up from this chair, I don't have to, I don't have to tense up to go, right? I can just stand. There's no time pressure. But if I'm running, and I'm going to sprain my ankle in a hole. I need to, I need to tense up my muscles all around to protect that joint before it hits mm-hmm. the ground. And, and so you can use time pressure. So if you're trying to get a guy to, to find a co-contraction in his abs and his back muscles to get his, his, uh, his, his trunk to work better then just, just have him change directions really fast, you know, switch your feet around and throw. And by adding time pressure, you have to find a co-contraction and it encourages you to get to the optimum link that you're going to work best at. And so you're, you're putting stress on the system that it has to self-organize. Now, if we put a, 
put an aqua ball in your hand or a water ball in your hand and we do exercises that mimic that motion, now we have a whole new universe of exercise we can do that help us learn to do those things without ever thinking about it. And so um, in early rehab, we use a lot of, even before we start throwing, we'll start doing like shoulder tubes. Um, we'll start doing the shoulder sphere. There's this thing called a grip ripper, which is a ball on, on a spring yep. and a ball on yep. the, and can we shake those? Because it just creates these little perturbations, right? And we can control the stress on the ligament. We can keep it from becoming an extreme valgus. And we can now begin to teach the muscles to, to work. And we can take them through a throwing motion at, mm -hmm. and, and, and get a little bit more, uh, a more functional outcome in that. I mean, that term functional is kind of overused, but a more functional outcome in terms of that. We're teaching the body to, to, to execute these little microsecond co-contractions to stabilize joints and protect like ligaments and, and labrums and things like that. So. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, as far as um, when you talk about an open skill versus a closed skill, closed environment, open environment, mm -hmm. when would you start to implement um, some of these, I guess, uh, like you talked about that pivot throw, we call it a pivot throw, mm -hmm. where you basically yeah. do a plyometric mm -hmm rotational jump and then make the throw yeah. where in the process would you implement that would you implement it well obviously it depends on the athlete but give me an example where hey this is someone i'd use it right away this is someone where i'd mm -hmm. probably you know we're going to work on this improve yeah. the attractor well for this uh particular mm -hmm. athlete and then go from there yeah so like post-op rehab i wouldn't do that right i wouldn't add i would use low-grade perturbations and then gradually expand toward using time pressure. I mean, and if you think about it, uh, an oscillation is, is a time pressure movement. It's, you're moving from concert to Easter to concert to Easter back and forth. And so, and so you're creating time pressure. Um, and so, uh, but for performance, uh, for the healthy guys right away, like we're gonna, we're gonna get them to find this stuff now. Um, uh, for injured athletes, it, it really depends on the nature of the injury. But if I got my hand on, if I got two hands on the ball, I have an elbow injury, right? I can go through a lot of total body movements and still protect my elbow because I got it connected with the other hand. I'm, I'm controlling the degrees of freedom. I'm not getting valgus stresses, right? And so, um, so here's, again, it comes down to, I, I made a, a, I guess, what years is almost 30, 27, 28 years now of physical therapy practice. And I tell everybody this all the time ago, I made a whole living out of these, uh, this concept right here. Hey, does that hurt? No. Okay. Do some more of that. Okay. Does that hurt? Yes. Okay. Stop doing that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's really hard. Physical um, therapy. If it hurts, stop doing it. Right. That's right. That's it. And, yeah. and, and, uh, and so you'd have to begin. So for, for our guys that are performance based, they're here to get better. We start adding that right away. And, and the cool thing about the Savage training process is that there's no compartmentalization. We don't have strengthening and mobility and skill act and skill acquisition all go, it's all one it's all one big mass right and so we'll have a guy in a bullpen and he has to stop and go do an exercise because he's not feeling what he's supposed to feel and he comes back right we have a guy working out in the gym now he needs to feel that on the mound he goes over he puts the weights down and goes over and throws a pitch um so it's all sort of one big giant you know thing and it's not it's not pieces right it's just constantly getting the body to move differently with this sort of these universal stimulus that that create these these movements that that are more op, uh, more functional more more optimal I guess so yeah I think uh, these perturbation methods and mm -hmm. uh, the unpredictability of of having a jug essentially with water in it mm -hmm. that applies an inertial load in a manner that you can't predict and you have to respond to um, from uh, sense where, hey, it knocked me this way, I immediately have to be able to stabilize that load or have some sort of co-contraction prior to the load hitting me. So then mm -hmm. I have optimal stability through that. Those are able to be a lot more specific in yeah. terms of the movements that we can use them with, mm -hmm. as opposed to what you see in most physical therapy practices, where an individual has had a shoulder injury or an elbow injury, mm -hmm. and now they're sitting there at 90 degrees of flexion straight out in front of them 
hold your arm here and then they just give them yeah. perturbations from random angles and then does that ever transfer to the field well likely very likely no so yeah that's the that's the fortunate thing and that that may be a preparatory activity to teach an athlete yeah, here's how that. you can use one of these implements or or use you know these types right. of but right there's a there's a place for that right like that's not like that's a terrible idea but <laughs> it's it's an early preparatory movement right and then we got to transfer it to an actual real movement right one that one that we actually have to use and so yeah i i agree and there's a lot of things that we that we did in physical therapy that I, I wish looking back now I'd done differently, right? Um, we just, you know, you, you operate with the information that you have and as you learn more, but you know, we, um, you know, we were doing these exercises that were in these, like, we want to, we want to isolate a muscle, right? I want to, I want to only do external rotation. Well, why would I ever only want to do external rotation? Like, mm-hmm. I want to do, I want to do an entire movement. I, I want the muscles to all work together. I don't need to isolate muscles, you know? Um, in bodybuilding, you isolate muscles because you want them to be hypertrophied. But in rehab and in and in performance, we don't need isolated muscles. We need muscles that work with all the other muscles. Right. right. So, yeah. Those awesome. are really, really great points, Randy. Yeah. Um, we're actually running out of time now, so we're going to get on. I have one more question for you, but yeah, you know, hopefully we can do this again um, soon because this was this was yeah. a great time. So. I really liked what you said about, you know, your views on variability and almost you need to seek it. Um, mm-hmm. I was that kid. I was that sixth grade three sport dropout who just did baseball and would be in the mirror in the basement, you know, all day just trying to get the movements down for that athlete sitting in his basement, you know, in front of the mirror, just trying to repeat a movement and just get it down because he thinks that's going to be his road to success. You know, what advice would you offer him? Uh, I would say understand that you're never going to be able to repeat it. And there is a place for looking in the mirror and looking, there's a place for that. Right. But we need to get out and move athletically. We, you need to throw, you need to become a prolific thrower, like run out, go outside and play football and play quarterback, go out, you know, throw, throw everything, throw everything you get your hands on. If it, if it doesn't hurt, grab it and throw it. Right. Um, and, you know, be athletic in your movements. Try to not let your, don't, don't, don't limit yourself to this robotic box that you, you have to limit. Cause when, when we had the idea that we could, when, when people thought you could repeat a movement pattern, then the plan was, okay, let's minimize, let's make it as simple as possible so we can repeat it, right? Make it repeatable, less moving parts. If we, if we, if we minimize movement, we maximize efficiency. And that's flawed thinking because what you do is you, you minimize, you, you, you rob the athlete of athleticism. You, you take away his adjustability by making a move in such a small box. He is unable to make any adjustments and he, and he, and he has no athleticism to make any of those adjustments. And so by seeking repeatability, the definition of overuse is repeating the same motion over and over again. <laughs> so mm-hmm. ironically, the people that some people that claim, okay, overuse is the issue. We throw too much. You need to be able to repeat your mechanics. Well, that's those are opposite thoughts like if 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 you're trying to repeat your mechanics you're destined to overuse that movement right and so we need a lot of variability movements and so for young people i just want you to go out and throw okay for older guys that need to 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 be a little bit more direct a little more quick a little more specific in in their intervention i would seek out somebody like you guys or come here and let's do an assessment let's let's just look at it, it all starts with the assessment we have to know what you're lacking in. we have to know where we can target our intervention and if we can have a process for going okay these are the things that we're that we're not getting right how do we make your body do that and design a training plan around that for each individual because everybody's gonna be a little different so try athletic throwing just get get out and throw stuff that doesn't hurt and then let your body be free let, let your body do what it feels like doing and if it if if you don't have that if you need a more direct approach and seek out somebody that understands this process, get an assessment, get a plan, and then execute that plan. There's a ton of information in what you just said, and that could be something we cover in a future podcast if you're willing to come back on. But maybe you could just give everybody a a place where they can find you, social media, website, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, so we're at floridabaseballranch.com. Uh, I think uh, we're on Twitter at Flor FL Baseball Ranch and Instagram, same thing. And um, Facebook is just Florida Baseball Ranch. And you can call us anytime. Our number is really easy to remember, 866-STRIKE-3. Okay, it's 866-787-4533. Yeah, you can reach out to us anytime. Um, our, our, our business leader here, Amy, she answers the phone any hour of the day. So call anytime and we'll, we'll help you. And so if you want to come see us, we're right here in Lakeland, Florida. And you can come to a, a weekend camp. You can come to one of our extended summer or winter programs where it's five days a week. Or you can customize a plan with a one-on-one -on -one evaluation training session. And then we can just, we can find something that fits what you need. And so we're here for you and just reach out anytime. I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun, guys. This is, this is a good time. Yeah, so this was awesome. thanks this for having me on it. This was great information. This was good. One. Appreciate Maybe it. Could, uh, do you have a plan for Savage certification again? Give a update for your future yeah. plan? Yeah, we just finished the, the most recent. We're probably going to try to do it every quarter or so. Right now we've done two of them and they both went really well. We have a lot of guys that are on board with what we're doing. And so we're looking at maybe another one october sometime um date to be announced so just stay attuned to social media and watch the website we'll, we'll be announcing that we haven't decided on an exact date yet and um but yeah we're here so give us a call anytime we'll be happy to help yeah carter and i got to get on that but uh thank you randy for coming on this was thanks, awesome man. thanks thank you good time thanks guys